This week, EP Energy files for Chapter 11. PG&E debtors secure commitments for full $14 billion backstop. Judge Polster denies stay on opioid MDL, including bellwether trial. More on all this and, as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the Week in Reorg. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Connor Skelting, reporter for Reorg in New York. And I'm Raksha Manjanath. Later this episode, our credit director, Mark Fisher, gives us a preview of certain credits set to report Q3 in the coming weeks, including some retail and energy names. It's Sunday, October 6th. Houston-based EP Energy filed for Chapter 11 in the Southern District of Texas late Thursday night, claiming that it had reached, quote, an agreement in principle on a comprehensive restructuring with a number of its key creditors, but made the decision that the protection of Chapter 11 would help the parties get the deal over the finish line. According to the first day declaration, the agreement reached was with Elliott and Apollo and certain other, quote, note holders holding approximately 27.6 of EP's one and a quarter lien notes and approximately 71.2% of EP's one and a half lien notes. According to the debtors, the plan will reduce EP's funded debt by $3.3 billion and reduce annual debt service by up to $263 million. The terms of the agreement in principle include a $475 million equity rights offering, including $325 million in new money, and up to $150 million funded through equitizing reinstated par amount of one and a quarterly notes. Apollo and Elliott own $138 million of the one and a quarterly notes. The debtor's filing follows months-long negotiations with multiple stakeholder groups, including the Elliott Apollo Group, an ad hoc group of one and one eighth lien and one and a quarter lien notes, and a separate group of unsecured note holders. The final terms proposed, according to an 8K with all parties, was a quote global settlement proposal made by EP, which included an equity rights offering split between the debt holders. However, the debtors instead chose the agreement in principle with Elliott and Apollo that I just discussed. According to the declaration, no other creditor or ad hoc group agreed to make a sufficient new money investment in the debtors, and the debtors determined that it would be in the best interest of all stakeholders to agree to a new money transaction. At the first day hearing, a number of parties in interest presented various concerns to the court, including unsecured note holders, a group of one and an eighth and one and a quarterly note holders, and a group representing royalty interest holders. The royalty interest holders filed a preliminary objection prior to the start of the hearing seeking a reservation of rights. Struck, representing the ad hoc group of unsecured note holders, previewed their intention to object to the debtor's plan. On Tuesday, PG&E Corp. disclosed that it had, it had entered into backstop commitment letters for the full $14 billion provided for in its Chapter 11 plan as of Monday, September 30th. The filing included a table listing each party and its backstop commitment, as well as a form of commitment letter entered into by each party. As with the amended backstop commitment letters entered into by Abrams and Knighthead published on September 13th, the backstop commitments are, quote, subject to numerous conditions. On Thursday evening, Judge Dennis Montali issued an order regarding the upcoming October 7th hearing on exclusivity and fee procedures, pointing out that the exclusivity termination issue has been, quote, briefed, argued, and decided, and instructing Movent's counsel to focus on, quote, what has changed in such a short period of time to justify reversing the decision. 
On the extent the court revisits the prior decision, Judge Montali asks the parties to address the quote, likely schedule an impact on the pending estimation proceedings in the district court and the Tubbs fire trial in the San Francisco Superior Court. Judge Montali also asked debtors' counsel to address the same issues and explain, quote, what difficulties might follow from permitting considerations of a competing plan. Separately, the IBEW filed a joinder on Tuesday to the TCC, an ad hoc committee of senior note holders joint motion to seek termination of exclusivity. Also on Tuesday, Judge Terry Jackson set a December 13th date for a joint case management and trial readiness conference in the Tubbs fire proceeding. Earlier, in a September 26th joint statement setting forth their respective positions on pretrial deadlines and procedures for the accelerated Tubbs fire trial, both parties had agreed that the trial should be bifurcated into separate liability and damage phases, while deferring on whether a single jury should hear both phases. At the scheduling conference, Judge Jackson permitted the parties to file short briefs addressing the issue. And for our regular recap on the opioid litigation and the credits affected, ahead of an October 21st trial start date for the Track 1 cases, Judge Diane Aaron Polster denied the motion of certain defendants seeking to stay the opioid MDL proceedings until a final resolution of the Ohio AG's writ of mandamus petition and mandamus review of Judge Polster's denial of their recusal motion, both of which are pending in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit. Defendants, including Amerisource Bergen, Cardinal Health, McKesson, and CVS, among others, filed the petition Tuesday evening. They argued that proceedings should be stayed until the mandamus petition is resolved in order to, quote, take into account the guidance such a resolution would provide, regardless of outcome. Later in the week, certain of those defendants filed a motion in the Sixth Circuit to stay the MDL proceedings, citing the, quote, many unusual and inappropriate public statements made by the judge. The petition stated that they were moving on an emergency basis, given that the Track 1 proceedings are set to begin on October 16th. Also on Wednesday, and as directed by the Sixth Circuit, Bellwether plaintiffs Summit County and Cuyahoga County submitted a joint response with respect to the pending mandibus petition filed by the Ohio AG. The submission argues that the petition is based on, quote, two fundamental misconceptions, and that the outcome of the trial is, quote, in no way binding on the state of Ohio, which is not a party to the MDL. The state has no standing to seek relief in the Sixth Circuit. In addition, the responding Bellwether plaintiffs stressed that Ohio never sought to intervene in the district court to request the, quote, drastic relief it now seeks, instead opting to, quote, sit on the sidelines while the district court addressed and denied the defendant's motion to dismiss. Mallinckrodt Management, speaking at the Cantor Healthcare Conference last week, said that they are, quote, very pleased that the company was able to settle the Track 1 cases and believes that there may be a pathway, quote, specifically for Mallinckrodt, to reach a global settlement. The company said that it is not interested in settling litigation piecemeal. Although Mallinckrodt would not comment on the potential size of any settlement and said investors should not read into settlements already reached by the company or other manufacturers, management did comment on potential timing. Management said that if a deal does go down, expect it in months, not weeks or years. Management also stated that in regards to its $700 million in notes maturing in 2020, it would be, quote, fair to assume that it could look to secure debt capacity to address those maturities. On the island of Puerto Rico, in an exclusive interview with Reorg last Monday, 
AFAF's Omar Marrero projected a longer path to confirmation for a Commonwealth plan of adjustment than targeted by the Parisa Oversight Board. While the board is hoping to obtain plan confirmation during the first half of 2020, Marrero said that he sees reaching that major milestone in Puerto Rico's overall restructuring no sooner than this time next year under a, quote, best-case scenario. Quote, within a year would be quite aggressive, probably, so that would be the best-case scenario, Marrero told Reorg during an interview at FF headquarters in San Juan. He also sees the support of the administration of Governor Wanda Vasquez as an expediting force that could spur other debt restructurings in Puerto Rico, adding that he thinks that the filing of the Commonwealth Plan could spur progress to the restructurings underway for the HTA and PREPA. In addition to heading AFAF, Marrero serves as the Commonwealth's CFO. Also last Monday, fuel line lenders Cortland Capital Market Services LLC and Solis filed an amended complaint to their priority litigation, modifying the four causes of action asserted in the original complaint and adding three additional ones, including a claim for unjust enrichment and another seeking an order declaring that the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority, RSA, is, quote, null and void to the extent its provisions were intended to harm the fuel line lenders. As in the original complaint, the lenders are seeking to, quote, protect their asserted priority in relation to PREPA's bondholders and to ensure any funds required to be used to pay the fuel line lenders are not diverted to bondholders. Cobra Acquisitions LLC, meanwhile, filed a motion in the PREPA Title III case seeking an allowed administrative expense related to an unpaid and outstanding balance of $216.1 million plus interest not yet invoiced. In a report published on its Liberty Street economics blog, New York Fed researchers said that the Puerto Rico's economy is showing, quote, considerable signs of improvement two years after hurricanes Irma and Maria, while the U.S. Virgin Islands economy, quote, remain mired in a deep slump. Through the end of 2018, with only, quote, signs of a nascent recovery emerging in 2019. The report states that the USVI have suffered the second deepest sustained post-hurricane job loss in the United States after New Orleans following Katrina in 2005 to 2007. Other top stories last week were Forever 21 freefall bankruptcy buttressed by $350 million dip, 130 vendor support agreements. Valeris's ability to pledge Rowan assets remains limited without a parent guarantee of Rowan's bonds or the consummation of internal reorganization. Deluxe to raise $115 million in new money cut debt by well more than half in Chapter 11 prepack. And as always, here's Jim Holloway with the week ahead. Well, thanks, Connor. And yes, as always, like the cold rain of October, I'm back and I see a bad moon rising, of course. Monday, October 7th, Sears Holdings. I think I mentioned the iconic Sears sign. It's sitting in a parking lot next to the $3 haircut place over in the third ward of Houston. Well, it looks like the old Sears building is being demolished. Maybe it'll be replaced with a craft brewery or maybe even we work office space. Anyways, we had some some high drama in the confirmation hearing last week and said confirmation hearing is scheduled to continue on Monday. So we'll see. There is also the second day in Alta Mesa and an amended plan and dip hearing in Blackhawk and a couple of items related to PG and E, such as an exclusivity termination hearing. 
Tuesday, October 8th, Plan Status Conference and FES and the weekly TSA report due from Puerto Rico. Wednesday, October 9th, Omnibus Hearing in Mission Call, Cure Objection Hearing plus a UCC DIP Order Mediation Conference in Verity. Thursday, October 10th, whole lot of hearings of the Omnibus Sword for Ditech, Cloud Peak and Sun Edison, a second day hearing in Purdue, a sale hearing in Jack Cooper, and a first day hearing in EcoBat. And Friday, October 11th, Purdue again, preliminary injunction hearing, and in Alta Mesa, a bidding procedures and cash collateral hearing. That seems to be it. In the words of the great Shane McGowan, sad to say, must be on my way to back to y'all in New York. Thanks, Jim. And now here's Mark to discuss what we'll be looking out for in companies' Q3 earnings. Thanks, Connor. So I'm going to talk today about a few companies, few sectors that we'll be keeping a close eye on as they report earnings over the next um, few weeks, uh, later this month, early next month, as uh, the companies that we follow typically do. Uh, companies will uh, that we'll be looking out for that I'm going to talk about today are uh, ones where we might uh, expect some changes in capital structure, uh, changes in um, in and how the company thinks about its capital structure in light of some uh, changes in the industry that we've been uh, we've been tracking. So um, let's start with uh, energy, which of course remains very topical. Of course, this past week, EP Energy filed for bankruptcy, which was discussed at the top of the podcast. But I'd actually like to focus on natural gas producers. In September, gas prices bounced somewhat from their summer lows, only to sell off again at the end of the month and into October. Many producers had shifted focus, which we've been highlighting at Reorg from production to trying to conserve cash and even return cash to shareholders and creditors. Reorg recently picked up coverage of Gulfport Energy, uh, one name that I wanted to discuss, which is operations in the Northeast and also in the scoop. On its second quarter call, Gulfport said that it purchased $105 million of principal of its senior notes at a discount, which was a shift in capital allocation from previous purchases of equity. Management actually uh, commented that it could purchase 30% of its outstanding shares with just $150 million at the time. We will also be looking for any clues about uh, 2020 capital spending. Um, Gulfport originally set out to generate $100 million of free cash flow in 2019 while increasing production slightly. Given the drop in gas prices, that target appears uh, uh, certainly tougher now. Management has said that capital spending in 2020 will be dictated by gas prices and the company would like to generate free cash flow. According to an analysis by Reorg, um, though unless Gulfport reduces well inventory further, it will be difficult for the company to be able to maintain production without increasing spending uh, materially. That's because in 2019, the company was able to grow production by focusing on completing wells that were previously drilled. However, drilled but uncompleted well inventory has shrunk um, materially. Uh, So that's Gulfport. Those are some things that we'd be looking out for. Um, Another natural gas name that we'll be focusing on is Ultra Petroleum. Last we heard from Ultra was a month ago when the company said that following an amendment to its RBL that would result in a 
lower borrowing base with a further step down in February and a covenant capping capital expenditures, the company would suspend uh, drilling. CEO Brad Johnson said, and I quote, in the current price environment, it is difficult to support investment in new well development in the Pinedale. Fortunately, we have a significant production profile coupled with a low cost structure that can generate strong cash margins. We believe that our approved developed producing reserves in the low base decline of Pinedale will generate substantial free cash flow for the further foreseeable future and will provide the company sufficient liquidity to implement the reduction in capital investment. In the near term, we will direct our free cash flow to the repayment of the credit facility, building flexibility for the company as we continue to focus on improvement of the overall capital structure, end quote. Uh, so what we're looking for, we look forward to hearing about an update on potential for cash generation and what the company is planning to do with that cash. According to Rear Covenants, Ultra uh, needs to amend its term loan to allow for open market purchases and purchase in general of junior lien and unsecured notes. So um, let's see what they'll have to say. And, um, you know, that's, of course, we'll be looking at for a lot of other names in the energy space. But those are a couple in natural gas that I wanted to to highlight. Next, uh, retail, uh, of course, is always pretty topical in, in stressed and distressed credits. Um, retail companies also report off months. So we typically get companies reporting throughout the year. And in the last month, results have really not been uh, you know that great, I guess, continuing trends that we've been seeing. Last week, Bed Bath & Beyond reported a 6.7% decrease in same-store sales in its latest quarter, with adjusted EBITDAs calculated by Reorg turning negative. Cena. Proforma for Dress Barn, which it's winding down, reported comp sales fell 2% and adjusted EBITDA fell over 10% year over year. Uh, so as always, um, you know, in light of that, uh, we'll be watching out for JCPenney, um, big name in the, uh, the, the the credit space now, uh, continues to maintain, uh, JCPenney continues to maintain that liquidity uh, will be maintained at at least $1.5 billion throughout the year. We'll be looking for any indication of vendor tightening, given the commentary on restructuring risk uh, in the um, in, in the market. JCPenney had repurchased a small amount of its 2020 notes during the second quarter, leaving $105 million outstanding under that issue. Gross margin uh, in the quarter, though, did improve from the prior year. However, management guided to a smaller improvement in the second half of uh, this fiscal year. So we'll be looking out for any changes driven by either increased or reduced markdowns to, to drive results um, and how that will affect the margin. Uh, another name switching out of retail, another um, company um, will be focused on, which um, might uh, people are discussing uh, right now, earlier in the year, we wrote about propane distributor feral gas potentially having to include going concern language when it next reports, given uh, the, the 357 million of senior notes maturing June of next year, um, more than the amount of liquidity the company had at the end of its la latest quarter. Uh, quarter. So that uh, fiscal year end um, when they would potentially be reporting going concern language, um, it is upon us. Um, Feral Gas has yet to set a date, uh, though last year it released its annual report at the end of September. In its latest quarter, Feral Gas showed slight improvements in EBITDA, even with the 
decline in revenue. To highlight the issue at the company in the press release uh, last quarter, Feral Guest announced, and I quote, as the company continues to evaluate options to address leverage, the company does not intend to comment further on its progress in this regard or on potential options until further disclosure is appropriate or required by law, end quote. The company also said it, quote, is suspending the practice of holding conference calls with investors, analysts, and other interested parties in connection with periodic reporting of financial results results for a completed period. So I guess we won't be um, hearing uh, what the company has to say on a conference call, but we will be looking out for um, that press release and uh, that SEC filing um, as well. Uh, so those are just a few of the names that um, you know that I wanted to highlight across a few uh, few industries. Of course, um, these are just a few of the names that drop um, in the bucket of what we'll be following. Uh, many other names within energy will likely be uh, topical, including services, uh, along with um, healthcare as well as our industries that we've been following very closely, and we've seen a lot of um, stress recently. Uh, names such as those potentially affected by the risk of legislation related to surprise billing, which we've um, uh, written a lot about uh, for out-of-network care, and also drug companies related to opioid litigation, um, for which everyone should listen to REARG's latest webinar, uh, which we uh, held last week. So uh, in other words, uh, things are very busy here at REORC, uh, and there's a lot that we'll be looking out for over the coming weeks. So uh, stay tuned. Thanks for listening. And Connor, back to you. Thanks a lot, Mark. And thank you for tuning in to another REORC Weekly Review. As always, find all of our podcasts on the media page on the site, plus iTunes and SoundCloud. This has been The Week in REORC, and I'm Connor Skelding.